Today is Sunday, June 12th, 2022, and this is episode 266 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? I'm awesome. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Doing good. It's dog days of summer here in Atlanta, so it's hot and humid. Oh, my goodness. It's hot out there. It is. But hey, thank God for air conditioning. So here we are. <laughs> Absolutely. So it has been some time since we have done a show and life keeps happening. It's amazing. I, I kept, I keep thinking that my kids are out of school now and, but nope, there's a, there's like a just, flow of stuff to keep me at bay. It's just simple. Just quit your job, divorce your wife, disown your kids, and you'll have plenty of time. Do this podcast all day long then. Yeah. It's a I great mean, idea. I've been telling you this for years. Someday you'll listen. Oh. My priorities, they're all out of whack. Mm. What can I say? All right. Before we get into the show, a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express are ours and do not represent those of our employers. All right. So our first story today, this is a follow-up from one that we've talked about a couple of times over the years. And this comes from CSO, CSO magazine. The title is Uber CSO's trial underscores the importance of truth, transparency, and trust. So a number of years ago, I think it was actually, God, it was seven years ago. Imagine that. Six, six or seven years ago, Uber had a couple of breaches. And one of the, one of the outcomes of that, of the breaches is that they, apparently they being Uber had a apparently tried to hide the fact that they were breached, or at least the severity of the breach. And one of the ways they did that was by, by taking the, the I guess the threat, the blackmail, I guess, as it were, and allegedly they dispensed with that through a bug bounty. So basically they, they paid the bound or they paid the, uh, the blackmail via a bug bounty settlement. Which. I can understand the logic there. Somebody comes to you and says, we found this weakness in your environment. But that's not quite how it went down. But you know, I'll put it this way. A lot of other companies have bug bounty programs where you can come to them and say, hey, we found this weakness and here's a proof of concept. Can you pay us for the bug bounty? But this was a bit more than a proof of concept where they downloaded information on 57 million yeah. Uber drivers. So basically all their, all of their data. And so the number of government agencies, both the, um, the attorney general in California and then the U S FTC has taken action against, uh, both Uber and the, the CISO, which is interesting because it's the CISO is directly facing criminal charges, which is not a common thing, but it really, as the article's title points out, it really underscores the importance of CISOs being very transparent and upfront and honest and doing the right thing, even if it's the painful thing. There, there is, actually is a little bit more information about how the breach happened now that the FTC got involved. They, they apparently have published the, the cause of the breach. And it was fairly common. I, this has happened a good bit recently. The, the secrets for the database was stored in Uber's GitHub account, but that GitHub account was not public. 
However, the employees, their, their developer employees had reused passwords for, for GitHub, for that GitHub access. And somebody found, got lucky, found those Uber employees passwords in a previous data breach from some other unrelated site. That's it's un, unclear what that was and, and had obtained access to the, their GitHub source code, which contained these secrets. Those secrets gave access to the database. They were able to download the database, Con apparently, allegedly contacted Uber, threatened to release the data, the data, if they didn't get, I don't know, a hundred thousand bucks. And, and so they were paid that money through a, through a bug bounty program rather than reporting it as a breach. Yeah, that's interesting. And this is the common thing we've talked about a lot of S3 buckets and, and access to them being not as well controlled or people forgetting their secrets are published out there or leaked and not rotating them and seems fairly pedestrian in retrospect, but a common problem that many companies suffer from something tough to get and we see this over and over again. Yeah, ab absolutely. It is, it is other than the, the traditional ransomware type attacks, it is becoming, in my experience, one of the more common vectors of, of breaches. What do you feel, or how do you feel about the CISO being charged though, in this situation? Hey, gosh, I'm, I'm really conflicted. On the one hand, he knowingly did wrong and that is, uh, that's on him. But at the same time, he did it in the, in the capacity of, of his, of his work at Uber. So you really don't know what kinds of conversations and guidance he, he was given. I suppose all that stuff will come out in, in the court proceedings, but I'm on a, a little bit on the side of him being held personally responsible, but as a CISO myself, it is uncomfortable, right? You, you know, yeah. it, it really highlights. Look, you have to do always the right thing, no matter how uncomfortable it is. There's no margin for error. The question is, what's the right thing, right? That's Many true. people are, are very, very good at justifying their behavior. In this case, the right thing is, I'm sure they're inter internally, they felt they were protecting the company or protecting something, or that there was a, a good, reasonable, viable reason for why they were doing this. It's not like they had a conversation of, hey. You want to do something bad today? They, I'm sure that they had very good internal justifications for why they did what they did. Now, whether or not those are, you know, appropriate and accurate to a reasonable third party is a different conversation. And also, I think it's important to point out he's not being held accountable for the breach. He's being held accountable for the cover-up. Correct. For not reporting it. Which is, a, I think I've seen, well, let me back up and say I have seen many people call for executives to be held accountable for the breaches themselves, which is not something I support and not something I think makes sense. Yeah. It's, that's like saying if somebody breaks into your business, smashes the front door and gets in, that's your fault. Yeah. There's yeah, a third reactor. You know, I, I definitely don't, yeah, I definitely don't agree with, with that. But yeah. when you, when you initiate a cover up as is right. alleged in this case, I, that's what, I, that's where I think. And, and the question is, and here's where it gets a little squishy for me. Every day, every company of any size has some sort of cyber incident of some variety. What crosses the threshold to be reported? Now, mind you, there are laws and there's guidance and that sort of thing, but it's not an automatic understanding, I think, with a lot of people of what does and does not need to be reported 
in the guise of, of an incident or a breach. Yeah, this I guess that's why I'm 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 not fully, you know, fully firmly on the side of of this person being being accused criminally. Because again, you we, I don't know all of the details. You you don't know right. what was in you don't know what was in their mind when they made the decisions they did. You don't know what the relationship was with the people who reported the breach or however you want to characterize them. So that's the, I guess, the uncertainty in my mind. If, you know, if it was very cut and dry in the former CISO was just said, look, Hey, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to report it because I don't want to hurt the, hurt the stock price. I don't want to personally have to deal with it. Like, yeah, you know what? That is unequivocally something that that they need to, he needs to be held account for, but it's unclear again, it's just, there's just a lot of uncertainty here. And, and I suppose I'll, I'll, that's why there's a legal system here to yeah. adjudicate those things. It will be interesting to watch. I think. Absolutely. All right. So the, uh, the next story we have comes from the hackernews.com. The title here is Conti leaks. Reveal ransomware gangs' interest in firmware-based attacks. So I think it's pretty widely known in the industry that a couple months back, after the Conti Group announced their support for Russia's action in the Ukraine, they were not incredibly popular in the criminal world, and some other uh, some other malicious actor took offense to that and published a bunch of internal communications and code uh, belonging to the Conti ransomware gang. And among the among that set of communication is some discussions about how, between the the members of Conti about their desire to to target firmware, specifically the Intel management engine. Which is a, a terrifying development. Um, I, it's unclear if they're having any luck with that or if, if they will have success with it. But it is, uh, in my mind, this is going to really dramatically change the, the landscape a bit on uh, you know the, the severity and the response on these threats. Because right now, it, it uh, there's a, a lot of a lot of focus on. The ability to detect, obviously prevention is, is key, but also the ability to detect. But when an actor is able to target something like the, the, the management engine and the code, the malicious code that they're executing is outside the context of what your normal security tools can see, it, that is a very different, very different beast. And as an industry, we're really not tooled to, to fight, fight. Um, malware and, and, and security issues inside that far down inside, uh, inside yeah. hardware. Start assuming compromised hosts need to be bricked yeah. and like melted the slag and start over. It, at a time when there's already massive supply chain problems for, uh, for server equipment. Yeah, that's, here's hoping this is a lot harder than we think it is and that this doesn't easily happen for these guys because that's a nasty attack factor. I, my suspicion is that we are, and I think we've already seen a little bit of it, but over the next probably two or three years, we're going to see a huge market evolve around firmware protection. 
I don't know what that's going to look like, if it's going to be actually things that run in firmware, if it's going to be operating system specific things. I'm not entirely sure in what form that will take, yeah. but I, where there's a need, I think we'll start seeing uh, people sell their snake oil. <laughs> so you're saying we should write up a business plan? I'm way ahead of you. You didn't, once again, didn't invite me early. Fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I wonder, I don't know much about this attack. I'm nasty too, because this would survive an OS reload. This would survive a lot of things. I do wonder if you, let's say you're running, let's say you move your desktop to a virtual environment in the cloud, like on a Citrix farm or a AW, a Azure hosted desktop farm. I, w I wonder how susceptible they would be to this type of attack, or if it's abstracted enough that it would fail trying to escape out of the container it's in in a cloud environment and maybe that's a meaningful reasonable potential defense i don't know it's an interesting one this by the way is where i keep going back to this it's never happened it's never going to happen but i see these pwn to own contests which are great but it's always against raw code i would love like a second phase of pwn to own with these novel defenses that are purported by all these vendors that stop 90% of unknown attacks, fine. Okay, we just demonstrated a very effective attack against fully patched code for XYZ. Let's say it's a Windows thing. Cool, EDR tools. Let's see how you work against this brand new novel attack you've had no time to prepare for in a public environment. Step up. That's never yeah, going to happen. That's, uh, that's crazy talk. So <laughs> just... to, to your previous question, I, I actually may be a little able to answer that. Don't violate any NDAs here. Oh no. So in, in general, the, the, the layer at which the untrusted unwashed masses operate in a virtualized environment, they wouldn't have access to muck with the, the manage, the Intel manage engine or the, the, whatever the, I forget what the name right. of AMD's version is, but the, that's not to say that if they weren't able to chain that with some other hypervisor escape bug or, or, or whatnot, that they, they could do that. But there is a, there is actually is a segment of cloud services where it could work and that's the bare metal offering. So bare metal offerings is basically where you're provisioned an actual server. It's not a virtualized server. It's actually a server you have is you as a, a tenant have access to the, the lowest level operating system. You can do whatever you want. You have root access and whatnot. And so I know that, that is a common concern of, of cloud providers is being able to do things like reset the UEFI and, and reflash the bio, the flash chips and, and whatnot. But again, it, it is unclear to me if this, this type of attack would survive the, the normal kind of repaving that's done by cloud providers in the context of, yeah. of, a, of a bare metal. But having said that, I do think that perhaps maybe some of the, the future innovations is server mainboard manufacturers and, and Intel and, and AMD providing functionality to do a, a clean wipe of everything so that you can reestablish trust in a server by following some, some process. Did we also see something like this about going after, uh, GPU firmware? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. <clears throat> it's an interesting, interesting problem. Hopefully it'll stay theoretical for a while.
Yeah, that's and the problem is it'll be difficult to tell when it makes the jump from theor <laughs> from theoretical to real. Yeah, no kidding. Right. Anyway, next story. Um, I, I'm going to preface the next the last two stories here is, is saying is it an industry for a long time. Windows is in the bane of the security world. We've fought against malware in, in the Windows context for a very long time. And, and a lot of the innovation that's been happening is in the Windows area. And there's some practical reasons for that. One is it's, it's relatively easy. It's been a, it's historically been an easy target. It is dominant in the marketplace and it has my favorite. Active Directory, the ability to built in ability to move laterally if it's not configured correctly, which nobody does. We have for the better part of 20 years, 25, maybe even 30 years, been focusing really myopically on how to protect windows environments. And we've been, Linux has been background radiations, not, not been very prominent from a malware perspective, certainly from a, from a hacking perspective there's long been attacks against different vulnerable daemons and and uh file upload vulnerabilities and blah 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 but it's interesting and i, and I think it's no small really no small coincidence that you know, cloud is becoming the predominant it deployment mode now and linux is really the the default platform for running stuff in the cloud. It's not typically windows. <clears throat> and so we're now starting unsurprisingly to see some pretty significant innovation, what I'll call innovation in malware on the Linux side. And it's a little frightening and for a couple of reasons. One is I think that like I've been in the business for a long time and I've worried about protecting both windows and Linux and Mac and other platforms for a long time. And it is a kind of a universal truth that the maturity of the security tools, both from a prevention and detection standpoint are much, much more mature on windows than they are in any other platform. Linux is certainly, I would say typically for most security companies, a close second but it's often a pretty distant second. And, and so now we're this next two stories talks about some, some malware that I think is, I would say is skipping ahead of what you normally see in, in the, 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 the normal maturation cycle of, of malware. The first one is a story from bleeping computer. And the title is new symbiote malware infects all running processes on Linux systems. And by the way, there's no, there's no discussion about how the, the malware gets on these systems. This is just think post compromise activity. So symbiote is a piece of malware that's been seen impacting a bunch of South American financial institutions and apparently law enforcement agencies, because I guess those two things go together. It is a, what I call a user land rootkit. So it's not, it doesn't load the kernel modules, but what it does is it injects a, a shared object into all running processes. It hijacks the LD preload construct, it loads itself. And it, when it does that, it makes it such that 
normal normal tools, normal modes um, of diagnosing a problem mask its presence. So if you were to look at net, the output of NetStat, it hides the connections in the connections table associated with the malware. If you look, if you do a TCP dump, hides the network traffic. If you look inside the contents of a directory, it hides the files associated with the malware. So you don't really realize that it's there. And again, this, this is, uh, not, I don't think it's at the moment really widespread, widely deployed, widely seen piece of malware. But as we've talked about over the years, once, once somebody starts having success with something, it's, it is widely copied and, and that is to me, pretty, uh, pretty scary. Yeah, this, <clears throat> this is an interesting one. And it reminds me of something that we've talked on and off of over the years, which is how can you trust any output from a compromised system? If that system is compromised, you're potentially interacting through the malware to get the forensic information you're trying to get. This is a great example of that, of you can't trust any of it. What can you trust? And in this case, it's, you know, probably network telemetry or anomaly detection around the host in some way, shape or form to detect some sort of weird malicious activity, but that's not easy. But this is one of those, that's a great example of once something has root or near level root, it can do whatever it wants. And if it's smart enough. It can hide from all of your normal detection tools. This particular one there, at least in its current incarnation, if you have security tools that are compiled statically rather than dynamically, it is likely that you could actually see the, the, the bad stuff. But again, yeah, you know, this is a case where the, the maturity of the tools available on Linux are, are, are very widely. Well, I think for a lot of folks, they don't think they need any security tools on Linux. True. They have this mindset, Max, in many ways, that they're just not susceptible or not a problem. It's not the, the world of malware that they're trying to defend against, like in a Windows host. That's a good point. That's going to change. I think it's already starting to change. But, you know, what I think what a lot of people feel is that Linux gets popped by misconfigurations or missing patches, not lack of effective anti-malware controls. So I certainly think that is, and I, and I see a lot of, have an opportunity to see things go wrong a lot. And, and, and I will say from an initial compromise perspective on Linux, it's almost always either an application level vulnerability, like a, like a web app, vulnerable web app, or some kind of configuration problem. It's a weak password or just runs the range of bad configurations, but it's those things, those weaknesses that enable things like this to get installed and maintain persistence. Sure. Yeah. It's an, it's the air chain, right? It's the series of events that if any one point could have been disrupted, you might've stopped it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it really, it, it points back to, at least until we were able to reestablish confidence in, in our ability to, to detect things, it goes, there's kind of two focus points. Number one is, and you said this, right? It's look, being able to detect malicious activity 
on on the outskirts on, on not just relying on like um an EDR agent looking at the network activity for for anomalous network flows and whatnot that you would see as reported by a router or a switch or what have firewall so that's one and the other is it puts back we have i won't say swung away from protection but it highlights the need to to do more on initial protection so to make sure that we don't have weak passwords that we don't have file upload our file upload vulnerabilities and and whatnot now those are imperfect things but this is highlighting that the ability to detect is also imperfect and so we we have to we have to make sure that we're putting the right amount of focus at each step of the of the error chain i'm not going to use that kill chain yep yeah no i yeah i'm stealing the air chain primarily from aviation risk management but yeah same thing then the, the last story is very similar this is uh from double pulsar.com which is uh kevin beaumont the venerable kevin beaumont's blog title here is bpf door an active chinese global surveillance tool so bpf door is similar in a lot of ways to the last piece of malware that we just described, but this one leverages eBPF almost exclusively. And it, unlike, unlike the, the last piece of malware, which would you know, present itself through normal services like SSH and whatnot, this one actually doesn't have a surface, doesn't have a, an exposed surface area. So it reuses existing open ports. So for instance, if it was a web server with port 443 open, the, the malware actually intercepts traffic destined for the web server and captures it before it gets to the web server. It can actually uh, run a, a command and control channel over the same connection that's used for your web server. And again, you would never see it because it's, uh, it, it looks like it's, um, or it would be difficult to see because it looks like it's normal, normal traffic. And, and there's apparently other options like ICMP and DNS and whatnot. But the point is there's really no perceptible surface area for this piece of malware to see that it's actually, that it's installed. It, it, it also hides itself from, from normal modes of detection and, uh, and whatnot. So. This one goes even further. It's using the, the recently, or the, the rapidly evolving, I should say, eBPF capability in pretty nefarious ways. By the way, I, I, eBPF is also like one of the bright lights of opportunity from a Linux standpoint, because like right now, on the one hand, I would say, gosh, like eBPF is enabling some pretty awful things in the Linux ecosystem. But on the other hand, Right now, eBPF is the thing that's going to solve, I think, a lot of the security, the, the, the issues we have with security agents being tied to kernel versions. Yeah. And is that always a way though? The things that provide realistic wins of productivity also get abused. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Everything, everything comes with a double-edged sword, it seems, but yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> But this is another one where it's going to be even harder to detect using, using normal things, because there's, there isn't going to be in a, necessarily an anomalous 
flow to, to see you're going to, it's a web server. You're going to see port four, four, three traffic. Yeah. Again, what are you reduced to is maybe trying to identify the secondary impact of that compromise, like a C2 control or an exfiltration of data or something anomalous, or just rebuild your servers every morning. Just come in, make the donuts, rebuild the servers from CD. From CD. (laughs) I like it. From backup tape. I think that's it. Those are your choices. I do, I, I, I do wonder if there is some, some future opportunity to rapid, just continuously rapidly rebuild your environment. Now that we have cloud capabilities, obviously not all applications are built in a way that would support this, but it is getting to that point where. If I'm a bad guy, then I'd start looking at how do I go to your source of rebuild? Sure. Right. And go compromise that. What's your gold image you build off of? That's true. I'm not saying it's not a good idea. Don't get me wrong. Especially I've thought about this for windows and hosted windows environments for desktops. Just, just make them disposable and just blow them away every week or something and find some way to preserve the user data in some way that is safe. And then if it gets compromised, it only exists for a short period of time. And yeah, limited blast radius, right? Yeah. You still got lateral movement issues and all sorts of other, so it solve everything, but it would give me a sense of confidence that I don't have persistent stuff sneaking in that's hiding out there, but I don't know. That's just an idea. I haven't tried in production well enough to know if it works, but. All right. Let's, uh, that's all of the stories we have for this week. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you for, for hanging in and hopefully uh, you found all this stuff interesting. And if not, send all of your complaint mail to Jerry Bell. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's right. So just as a reminder, if you want to follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter, it's at Lurg, L-E-R-G, and I'm at Malicious Link. I'm, I'm going to put a plug in for my, for my Mastodon instance. It's infosec.exchange. I, I hang out more there lately because I'm finding, finding the environment on Twitter to be a little problematic. Yeah. So anyway, you can find me at uh, both places. You can find the show on the internet at www.defensivesecurity.org. And, and I think, by the way, for the first time ever, we're going to have a transcript. Wow. Because, because I bought this thing and as we've been talking, it is real time transcribing what we're saying. And when you say bought this thing, it's not just your kids sitting there typing really fast, right? It's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I, Look, don't question my child labor laws, Jerry, child labor laws. <laughs> they're nine, they're 19 and 22. They're not, oh, they're, not they're not kids anymore. Make them work. Beat on. Let's go. Right. Crack that whip. All right. <laughs> Thanks everyone. Have a great, great week. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.